Hey there, misfits. This is Kate. And this is Cassie. Welcome to Horrorwood. She's here for round two. I got to know what happens. Things are coming back. (laughs) Thanks for having me again. Not that you had much choice. (laughs) So yeah, we're just going to get right into this. At the end of part one, we left off where Dominique had been taken off life support and her organs were donated based on her family's wishes. John Thomas Sweeney, who had originally been arrested for attempted murder, was now arrested for first degree murder. I got a lot of the information for this episode from an article written by Dominique's father, Dominic Dunn. He wrote a piece in Vanity Fair titled Justice, a Father's Account of the Trial of His Daughter's Killer. I linked it in the show notes for last week's episode, and I'll link it again in this one. Can you remind me, what year is it, are we at right now? Yes. So this is 1982. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, and, and it's the fall of 1982. She was taken off life support November 4th. Okay, right, right. Okay. In the article, uh, he brings up how if Dominique's cause of death had been different, such as a car accident, though it would have been just as heavy of a loss, it would have ended there. The family could mourn and try to find a new normal. But that when the cause of death is murder the family of the victim has to postpone their mourning because it's just nonstop right up until the day of the sentencing. And that's, of course, when the suspect is known, which in this case he was. From the day Dominique passed, this family could not get any kind of peace or justice. It just seemed like some obstacle was always being thrown at them. It started with planning Dominique's funeral, On November 4th, 1982, Dominic went to the Monsignor of the church that he'd once belonged to so he could discuss funeral arrangements. He wanted her funeral to be at this particular church. It's where they had been members. And the Monsignor had, I hope I'm saying that correctly, the Monsignor? Yeah, that sounds right. Monsignor, yeah. that's For some reason, I'm second guessing myself on everything today. All right. The Monsignor had read about the murder in the newspaper and was hesitant about having the funeral of a murder victim at the church. Whoa. Which is like, what? Because she was murdered, you think that's going to tarnish the church's reputation? Seems a little hypocritical, that, if you ask yeah, me. Yeah, that makes no sense to me. They're like, a dead person is a dead person? Like, right? Like, I, it's, yeah, especially because they had once belonged to that church. So that's what's yeah, so strange. That's, wow. That, yeah. Weird. Okay. So Dominic tried to convince him by saying, hey, we used to be members here. You actually christened Dominique here when she was a baby. You came to our house afterwards for the reception. Like, hello, help us out. But the Monsignor had no recollection of this. Now, granted, he was an older man, so perhaps his memory wasn't as sharp as it once was. But still, that has to be a blow to Dominic to hear that this man who once played a big part in his family didn't even remember them. So then Dominic mentions the name of a producer friend who was Dominique's godfather and would be giving the eulogy. But the Monsignor was like, yeah, I don't know who that is. (laughs) So Dominic mentions Maria Cooper, Dominique's godmother. She was the daughter of Rocky and Gary Cooper. Gary Cooper was a big time actor back in the day. At that point, the Monsignor perks up and says, oh, I gave Gary Cooper the last rites when he died and performed his funeral mass. Oh, his daughter was Dominique's godmother. In that case, I'll totally let you use the church for the funeral. Oh, so was this like a celebrity, like, like you had, you had to know somebody kind of church to like get in or is that just kind of weird? It was it was nicknamed the Church of I think it was the nickname the Church of the Cadillacs. Oh, okay. Because it was like very affluent clientele. Yeah, her dad basically had to name drop just to get a church to agree to hold the funeral there. Whoa, that is bizarre. Yeah, so strange. And also like 
you're grieving. She had been taken off life support that day. And this guy is like, mm, I don't know. I don't know who that producer is. Keep trying. It's just like gross. Yeah. So they come to an agreement and they schedule the funeral for Saturday, November 6th at 11 a.m. However, the Monsignor had clearly forgotten that he had already scheduled a wedding for 11 a.m. that Saturday. Mm. I think it was probably past time for that Monsignor to retire. Just saying. <laughs> the groom of the wedding saw the funeral announcement in the paper and called the church and was like, um, hey, what's up with Dominique's funeral being at the same time? The church calls Dominic. He and his sons go down there to straighten it out. But the Monsignor wouldn't even come out to talk to them. So finally, a priest came out and informed them that the wedding party refused to move their ceremony up an hour. So the Duns agreed to have the funeral an hour later. And they'd have ushers there earlier to say, hey, come back in an hour. Whoa, what a day at the church. Yeah, I mean, that's already it's a lot. Also, just like imagining accidentally showing up for one thing when you're assuming the other either way around like I, I guess either way around people, yeah, yeah. <laughs> either no matter who you're a guest of yeah <laughs> you're having a you're gonna have a difficult time there exactly Dominic says to the priest this is not the Monsignor this is this priest who has come out to talk to them he says I cannot comprehend how such an error could have been made and the priest says it's worse than you realize and Dominic asks what do you mean and the priest says, the groom is a friend of the man who murdered your daughter. Oh, my God. <gasps> yeah. So that groom saw that announcement in the paper, knows his friend is the one that killed her because he'd already been arrested. It was all over the news. And he's like, nah, we're not going to move our wedding up an hour. The family of my friend's murder victim can figure something else out. Wow, that's wild. I wonder, yeah. I wonder if he was invited to the wedding. And obviously couldn't go. And then couldn't go. I thought about the same thing. That's That would be a weird bit of trivia. Yeah. Wow. I mean, he probably was, honestly. Yeah, right? Like, if that's his friend. Huh, yeah. Funny. Another blow to the family was that in all the news reports, Dominique was referred to as the niece of John Gregory Dunn and Joan Didion, which, yes, she was their niece. Mm -hmm. But there was no mention of Lenny and Dominic, her parents as though she was an orphan. No mention of her siblings, nothing. So as Dominic put it, it's as if we had not only lost her, but been denied parentage as well. Yeah. And also, like, I feel like in particularly, like, you know, I feel like you hear so many Hollywood stories, I mean, tragedy or not, like where people, like their parents aren't involved for whatever reason. And mm -hmm. she actually had like very supportive. Exactly. You know, they weren't together, but like a pretty like solid family. Like that would be extra hurtful yeah they were very close because they were good <laughs> yeah the night before dominique's funeral her family watched on the news as john thomas sweeney was arraigned he was assigned public defender michael adelson for his case detective harold johnston who i brought up in part one we like harold johnston remember oh, right yeah told dominique's family that adelson was highly acclaimed and very tough and Adelson's assistant was Joseph Shapiro, a member of a highly prestigious law firm and who just so happened to be the legal counsel for Ma Maison. Oh, is that the same Shapiro family as Robert Shapiro, the famous the O.J. Simpson lawyer? You know what? Pause. Okay. I'm looking <laughs> it up right now. Okay. Looked it up. Could not find those two names linked together anywhere. But it is interesting, and I'm going to keep digging after this episode. Okay. <laughs> or if someone out know. there wants to look it up, then let us know, because now I'm now I'm very interested. So Patrick, or sorry, Joseph Shapiro, like I said, was the legal counsel, legal counsel for Ma Maison. Patrick Terrell, the owner of Ma Maison, said to the Los Angeles Times just a day or two after the attack that John Thomas Sweeney was, quote, a very dependable young man, and he would obtain the best representation for him. He made no comment about Dominique, even though he knew her, knew her family. Never once through any of it did he call them to express his condolences. Mm, shitty person. I bring it up because, as I mentioned in part one, just a few months prior, 
uh, John had nothing nice to say about Patrick when he told Dominic that he planned to open his own restaurant. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, but here Patrick is standing by his side, which is another reason that I think John was lying about his restaurant, just to try to impress Dominic. I don't think he ever had one. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Fred Leopold, who was a friend of the Dunn family, called them the night before the funeral to express his condolences and also to share a small nugget of information. He learned from a secretary at his law office that John had severely beaten another woman about a year earlier. Which, when you think about the timeline, because John met Dominique the previous fall at a Sagittarian birthday party, remember? Oh, that's right. Yes. This other incident would have happened right before he began dating her. Oh, so he was on the prowl for his next person. Yeah, it was just like one right after the other. Yeah. You just think had he faced the proper consequences in that scenario, maybe this wouldn't have happened. But, I mean, who knows? So the Duns passed this information on to Detective Johnston. On the day of Dominique's funeral, it was extremely hot. Her parents and brothers all arrived together. And when they opened the car door to get out, a hot gust of wind blew a bunch of wedding confetti into the vehicle. Oh, God. Something about that, when I read that, I was like, what a slap in the face. Yeah. Also, knowing the wedding was for the friend of your daughter's killer, like, I I think I would have lost it right there. Yeah, that's a lot. TV camera crews and photographers swarmed the family. The Duns went around the back because there was a wheelchair ramp back there. Because remember, Lenny is confined to a wheelchair. And the fucking photographers walked backwards in front of them to film them. It's like, can you give them a break while they try to get into the church? Yeah. To mourn their murdered daughter? Hundreds of people showed up, to which one of Dominique's former agents turns to her friend and says, what did they do? Call central casting? <gasps> yeah. As though Dominique's family had hired people to give their condolences. Like, who says that? And also, what? Like, who, I, that doesn't make any sense. Like, like uh, what is wrong with people? Well, and like, also nobody, I, people liked her, right? Like, uh, oh, yeah. I mean, like, she was loved by many. Not that that means anything, but like, shut up. <laughs> I don't know. Also, exactly. So her friend, so this is a friend of Dominique's that heard her say this, turns to her and says, no, these are all people that knew and loved her. Yeah. Bitch. Yeah. She didn't say bitch. But sure. <laughs> After the funeral, Dominic returned to his home in New York. And his first day back in the middle of the day, it was noon, he was exiting the subway in Times Square, going up the steps to the street when he was mugged at knife point. Oh, my God. He said, quote, from out of my mouth came a sound of rage that I did not know I was capable of making. It was more animal than human. Whoever that nameless, faceless man was, to me, he was John Sweeney. Whoa. I did. Oh, yeah, that's wild. That mugger didn't know what they were. Uh, oh, no. What they signed people, up for. People came running and said that they could hear him screaming from like blocks away. Whoa. So this family just really went through it. Dominic made several trips back to LA for preliminary hearings, which was a crazy roller coaster of a process. In February of 1983, there was a prelim hearing for the assault charge where John had strangled Dominique five weeks before her death. Oh, right. During that hearing, jo that's the one where she like when snuck they out. Need, of need the makeup for recording the yep. show. Yeah. During that hearing, John's defense attorney, Mike Adelson, kept addressing Dominic Dunn as Mr. Sweeney, as though he was the father of the murderer as opposed to the father of the victim. What? And Adelson tried to act like that was an innocent mistake, but of course it wasn't. He was just trying to get a rise out of Dominic, and he was a bully. During that same hearing... Adelson questioned Brian Cook. He was the friend from Chicago that was there with his girlfriend, Denise. And Brian talked about how they had gone out that night. And Adelson asks, when Miss Dunn got in from the bars, how drunk was she? Trying to tarnish her character or make it seem like she was this wild partier always getting drunk. Because that's what they do. They drag the victim 
Sure. Through Drunk girls deserve to be strangled. Everybody That's, knows I mean, that. Right? This Adelson was like, I mean, it's obvious. <laughs> if the shoe fits. Oh, I hate these guys. Okay. Yeah. Oh, Adelson <laughs> is a real piece of shit. So following that hearing, Adelson offered a plea bargain through the district attorney for the Dunn family. Their district attorney's name was Steve Barshup. They accepted the plea bargain because they felt going through a trial would take too much of a toll on Lenny's health. Plus, they had already gotten a first-hand look at how ruthless Adelson could be in the courtrooms. They were like, we don't want to have to go through that. Then, for some reason, three months later in May, Adelson reneged on the plea bargain. So now they've got to think about a trial. Like, just so much emotional manipulation on this poor family. Now they've got to select a jury. Just two days before the jury selection was supposed to start, Lenny gets a call from a journalist. He was a friend of the family, and he asked to meet with them because he had a message from Adelson. So they're all like, why is Adelson going through a journalist as opposed to the district attorney? And they said, okay, sure, we'll meet. Because they're curious. They're like, what's this guy going to say? Yeah. And also, is that illegal? Like, is that allowed? Well... I mean, I don't know that there was any legal repercussions for okay. it because basically he's just like going to talk to them and give a message. Sure. Yeah. So I, he's not yeah. like, you know. Yeah. They're not withholding anything in court, I guess. I, I don't know what I'm thinking of. <laughs> I mean, no, I but I see like what it you're, seems like a side dealing thing, which I would be like, um, well, I'm going to need a judge to look at this. Well, it definitely is a side dealing thing. Okay. And it's pretty <laughs> shady as shit. Okay. So the journalist says. He's there to offer a plea bargain. A journalist Mm -hmm. is speaking on behalf of the murderer's defense attorney Mm -hmm. offering a plea bargain. He says that John is full of remorse and is willing to plead guilty to a lesser charge of manslaughter because, remember, he was arrested for first degree. So just to kind of clarify for listeners out there who may be curious, first degree is premeditated murder and it's intentional. Second degree, it is unplanned, but still intentional, kind of like a crime of passion Mm -hmm. situation. Manslaughter, it is unplanned and it's unintentional. You can have voluntary manslaughter, which is you did not plan to kill the person. You didn't mean to, but your actions caused that person to die. Like you were, let's say you punched them in the face. Mm -hmm. And they died from that. You punch them, hurt, trying to hurt them, not intentionally trying to kill them. Involuntary manslaughter, it's unplanned, unintentional, and it's like you were... Like drunk driving, would that be? Um, like if you hit somebody? Like if you're... I mean, this is a, an extreme case, but like you're standing on a cliff and you trip and accidentally fall into the person next to you and that person falls off the cliff and dies. That oh. would be involuntary manslaughter. Okay. I mean, just, I guess, don't stand too close to a person on a cliff. Oh. I'm like, you um, guys, get away from the cliff. That's get what away I, from I, the cliff. immediately where my mind went. <laughs> That's today's lesson. Don't stand too close to a cliff. <laughs> so he says, backing up, he says, John is full of remorse. He's willing to plead guilty to manslaughter, but he'll plead but he'll only plead guilty to manslaughter, which came with a seven and a half year sentence as long as the assault charge was dropped. So the assault charge from five weeks prior to her murder, with mm-hmm. when they went out with Brian and Denise, he wants that dropped, and then he'll plead guilty to manslaughter. The journalist goes on to say that Adelson didn't see this case as a crime. No, murdering an innocent young woman with his bare hands, no, that's not a crime. Did you think it was a crime, Cassie? What was it? What did he think it was? Oh, he said it was a tragedy, and this is a quote, of a blue-collar kid who got mixed up in Beverly Hills society and couldn't handle it. Because sometimes when you find yourself in a prominent position among all these celebrities, it can be overwhelming, and you just have to do some murder about it. Yeah, kill your way out, right? Oh, my God. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, don't do murder. Rule number one of Horrorwood, don't do murder. Yeah, that's a good rule. Rule number two, don't stand too close to a cliff. Yeah. Especially if somebody next to you is kind of (laughs) clumsy. Yeah. And that person would be me. So I'll I'll just stay away from those. 
The journalist went on to say that if this went to trial, neighbors would be called to the stand that would testify that Dominique was a participant in the crime. This is what drives me fucking crazy. A murder victim is not a participant in their own murder. That That's not a thing. No. But they're, they're basically saying, if you don't accept this plea bargain, Adelson is going to drag your daughter through the mud. So they're, I mean, they're just intimidating, right? Like that's. Oh the yeah. Point. They're bullies. Because like, I'm like, yeah, let's call the neighbors. Go ahead. Bring everybody, you know. Oh, the neighbors were ready to say that Dominique and John fought constantly, that this wasn't anything new, that she knew exactly what was happening. The fact that this is even like where a lawyer's mind goes, it's just all fucked up. There had also apparently been two prisoners that had come forward. One stated that John told him he, quote, had the police believing he hadn't intended to kill Dominique. Hmm. The other prisoner said that John told him, quote, Dominique was a snob, too ambitious, who deserved what she got. The journalist said if those two prisoners were put on the stand, Adelson would, quote, cut them off at the knees. A prisoner's testimony, I mean, yeah. it's... You can't, like, put everything on it. And they did not eventually take the stand, but it just, the I mean, the tactics that these guys are using, yeah, it's scare tactics. And so the Dunn family is already vulnerable. They've already accepted a plea, bi- a plea bargain, then it was taken back. Now they're being offered another one and they're being bullied. But they were pretty skeptical, skeptical of the whole thing, mainly because Adelson had not done this through their district attorney, Steve Barship, but through a journalist. Right. So thankfully, they did not accept the plea bargain. Good. And afterwards, they went to Barship and told him what happened. And of course, he was pissed. I think Adelson knew evidence was piling up against his client. And this was his way of trying to end it. But the state wanted to proceed with the trial. And Burton Katz was the judge presiding over the case. Let me tell you a little bit about Judge Katz. Judge Katz showed up on the first day of court wearing designer jeans, glossy white loafers, tinted aviator glasses, <laughs> and no tie underneath his robes. He oh. was very tan, very well-groomed. Dominic describes him as looking more like a Hollywood agent than a superior court judge. And Judge Katz loved playing to an audience. It was borderline flirtatious. He liked to joke. He'd show up an hour late to court. The judge would show up an hour late to court and give these very elaborate but charming explanations as to why he was late. He once told them that he'd had the best weekend in Ensenada. He had his top down on his car. Oh, he wished they could have all been with him. The three female jurors would laugh and they just thought he was so funny. The nine male jurors would smile like, oh, this guy's awesome. It's like, what is happening? This is a murder trial. Oh, I know, but I'm so into this judge, though. <laughs> I like his vibe so much. Oh, God. I, I hope that he doesn't suck when it comes to the law, but oh, man. Oh, you're going to be <laughs> sorely disappointed. Okay. Oh, no. Cats did not show the Dunn family the same charm. Throughout the entire seven weeks of the trial, he mispronounced Dominique's name. He would call her Dominic instead of Dominique. People would just get up and leave the courtroom whenever they wanted. They'd come back in whenever they wanted. They could just mill about. The microphone on the witness stand kept falling off, and it rarely worked properly. It was never fixed. The courtroom was a mess, and the judge did not seem concerned about or capable, really, of keeping it in order. Adelson brought his wife and young sons to court made a big show of pretending to be strict with them. He would be like, okay, boys, now you got to be quiet. And, you know, the jury would laugh. They thought it was so cute. The judge brought his parents to the courtroom. What? His fucking parents. Like, what is this? And he would try to show off for them. It was bizarre. It was really bizarre. 
I gotta know more about this guy. You're gonna learn more. You're not gonna <laughs> like him at the end of I this. I know. I'll, I'll just tell you. But that. now I'm like, what other cases did he preside over that could? I don't know. I, I I'm just interested now. He liked he liked the celebrity. Cases. Yeah. That well, that's what makes me think like maybe yeah. there's other interesting things that he did. Not good, interesting. <laughs> yeah. One day, a photographer from People magazine came to take some photos, and at lunch, the judge signaled him to come talk to him in his chambers. So the photographer is like, all right, whatever. He doesn't want me taking photos. Fine. But that wasn't why he wanted to talk to him. Judge Katz told him, hey, I really want my eyes to show up good in the pictures. Which pair of glasses do you think look the best? And then he proceeded to try on a bunch of glasses. What? For a People magazine photographer? For People magazine. (laughs) For a murder trial. Whoa. As for John Thomas Sweeney, well, he was a changed man, Cassie. Oh, of course. He had found God. Mm. He came into court every day clutching a Bible, as they do. He dressed in all black, and he cried on the reg. One day, he came in saying that the other prisoners had been harassing him. I mean, he needed time to cry in private. So the court was recessed. (gasps) No. So that this fucking murderer could go cry in private because his buddies were being mean to him. Steve Barshep told the family, quote, something weird is going to happen in this trial. I can feel it. So remember how Dominic had heard that John had beaten another woman about a year prior to Dominique's murder? Yes. And the Duns had told Detective Harold Johnston about it. Well, he was able to track her down. Her name was Lillian Pierce. At Adelson's request, her testimony was given in the absence of the jury to determine whether or not it was admissible. Her story is harrowing. Lillian Pierce had dated John for two years, and during their relationship, he had beaten her on not one, not two, not three, but ten separate occasions. She had been hospitalized twice. He had broken her nose, punctured her eardrum, collapsed her lung, and thrown rocks at her when she tried to escape him. She said he would smash furniture and pictures, which if you remember in part one, he did the same thing with Dominique. He would smash furniture and throw dishes. Oh, right. Her testimony had a huge impact on the courtroom. Everyone was silent. John would not look at her. This, of course, pissed off Adelson. So he gets up and asks her, were you not drunk? Were you not on drugs? Like, just trying to make her look like the guilty one. Because he's a fuckwad. Then Steve Barship gets up to cross-examine her. And he asks, do you come from a well-to-do family? Adelson objects. And Barship tells the judge, I'm trying to establish a pattern. Mm. At that moment, John throws his (sighs) Bible jumps up from his seat, charges toward the back door of the courtroom, which leads to the holding cell area. The court clerk screams. Lillian Pierce screams. Someone yells, get help. The judge and the court clerk activate silent alarms. The bailiff lunges toward John, grabs him around the chest from behind. Four armed guards rush into the courtroom, almost knocking over Lenny's wheelchair, The bailiff and John crash into a filing cabinet. He's wrestled to the ground and Adelson screams out, don't hurt him. (gasps) Wow. They Uh, then had to handcuff John to the arms of his chair. Holy moly. Well, God really left him. Sure did. God just ran away in that moment. Oh my God. That's wild. That poor woman was probably terrified too. Oh, I'm sure. It's like living that trauma. Jesus. Then came the waterworks. Of course. John starts crying, says he's so sorry. And Judge Katz said, we know what a strain you're under, Mr. Sweeney. Fuck this guy. Judge Katz ruled Lillian's testimony inadmissible. So not only was the jury unaware of John's previous abuse towards women, they were also absent when he had this violent outburst. 
Mike Tipping, a reporter from the Santa Monica Evening Outlook, was present that day in the courtroom and wrote about it in his paper. And at Adelson's request, a court gag order was issued that same day preventing anyone involved in the case from talking to the press. From that day forward, Dominic Dunn was convinced that John was being sedated so that he didn't have another outburst like that. And John said under oath, though again, this was in the absence of the jury, that he was not sedated, that he only had some mild medicine for an upset stomach. The district attorney, Barship, requested a blood or urine test to substantiate that claim. Judge Katz denied the request. Wow, I forgot. And all this happened while the jury was not there. So Exactly. That's wildly convenient. Yeah. And the reason Judge Katz said that Lillian Pierce's testimony was inadmissible is because he said it didn't hold enough value. Oh, value. Wow. Adelson requested that Lenny, Dominique's own mother, not be allowed to testify in front of the jury because her being in a wheelchair would make them sympathetic (gasps) toward her. Oh, my God. The judge was like, you know what, Adelson? You're right. So he had Lenny give her testimony in the absence of the jury to determine its admissibility. That has to break some sort of disability laws. No? I could not find anything about that. I mean, again, this is the 80s, so since then, it's possible that's changed. Oh, my God. That's crazy. Yeah, it's real fucked up. The entire time she spoke, the judge barely looked at her and was just, like, writing stuff the whole time. Just not even paying attention. Lenny spoke about the time Dominique had come over after the first time John had beaten her, where he banged her head into the floor and pulled out chunks of her hair. And Adelson asked... Well, do you know what the argument was about? And Lenny said no. And Adelson asked, well, did you know she had an abortion? And Lenny said no. No one knew that Dominique had had an abortion because she didn't. This was just something Adelson made up in the moment to once again make Dominique look less credible. Or as though she had somehow caused John to act the way he did. And of course, a mom hearing that her daughter had been pregnant and had had an abortion and never told her because, you know, she's just assuming that this guy is telling her the truth. Sure. Yeah. It was a slap in the face. And but of course, it wasn't true. The judge ruled Lenny's testimony about the beating as hearsay and inadmissible. I... Adelson requested that all the statements made by Dominique's agent, her co-stars, her friends about how scared she was of John during the last five weeks of her life should also be considered hearsay and inadmissible as evidence. The judge agreed. (laughs) Also, at Adelson's request, the judge said, this is a quote, if any member of the Dunn family cries, cries out, rolls his eyes, exclaims in any way, he will be asked to leave the courtroom. Whoa, this is, I, I, I can't believe this. Like, I, 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 I demand a mistrial. I don't know. <laughs> it's so fucked up. Imagine being told at the murder trial of your loved one that if you cry, you'll be kicked out of the courtroom. Yeah, that, uh, I can't. So you're probably starting to notice a pattern. Yes. Any request Adelson asked, any in, in request Adelson made, Judge Katz granted. Adelson knew that Katz operated on flattery. So from the very beginning, he was all about playing to this guy's ego, even when it meant he himself had to be the butt of all of Judge Katz's jokes. Adelson was a pretty short dude, And Katz would always make fun of him for this. And Adelson just laughed along with him. And, oh, Judge Katz just loved this. At the end of part one, I told our listeners that there would be four minutes of silence before our theme music played. That was the minimum amount of time John Sweeney held his hands around Dominique's neck, strangling her. Which, can I just say, when I listened to to the episode, that Mm -hmm. four minutes was long. It's an eternity. 
I was doing things around my house and like I just sort of made a mental note of it and then I was washing I did so many things in four minutes and I and and the music finally came in and I was like oh my god wait I forgot I was waiting for that yeah yeah anyways it's a fucking long ass time to have your hands around someone's neck Steve Barship had the courtroom do the same thing during his opening argument, which is why I wanted to include it in the last episode. He he asked for a moment of silence for four minutes, and he said his watch. The entire courtroom was silent. Everyone, that is, except for Adelson and John, who talked the entire time. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they did. Norman Carby took the stand. He was the family friend whose house Dominique drove to after he choked her that first time. He's the one that took the pictures, right? The pictures, yes. I was just thinking about those. Yes. And the prosecution used those pictures to show how violent the attack was. If you remember from part one, I mentioned that in one of those pictures, she's laughing Because as we mentioned earlier, Norman had said, oh, now you won't have to wear makeup for your audition because she was going to be reading for the role of a battered teenager. Yeah. So they see these photos and Adelson just scoffs at them like, oh, she's laughing. Come on. Clearly she's fine. Mm. Deputy Frank D'Amelio, one of the first to arrive at the scene of the crime, testified that John had said to him, quote, man, I blew it. I killed her. I didn't think I choked her that hard, but I don't know. I just kept on choking her. I just lost my temper and blew it again. John Sweeney took the stand. He cried. He spoke very softly. He described his relationship with Dominique as being this beautiful thing. He talked about her pets. He named all of her pets. He denied ever choking Dominique that night they went out with Brian Cook and Denise Dennehy. He said they did separate after that, but that she promised to get back together with him. And it was her refusal that led to the final attack, like it was her fault. Mm. He said he couldn't remember anything about the murder, but that afterwards he did remember going inside the house and swallowing two bottles of pills in an attempt to kill himself. False, right? Correct. (laughs) Very false. No bottles were ever found, and if he swallowed two bottles of pills, his body sure did handle it well. Yeah, right? And he never went inside that house. He was outside the whole time. Remember, he was kneeling over Dominique. He told David to call the cops, and then the cops showed up. In the final days of the trial, District Attorney Barship introduced a letter that Dominique had written to John It's unclear whether she ever gave it to him, but that's kind of a moot point. It's what she says in the letter. It reads, and this is, it's kind of a long letter, so bear with me here. Selfishness works both ways. You are just as selfish as I am. We have to be two individuals to work together as a couple. I am not permitted to do enough things on my own. Why must you be a part of everything I do? Why do you want to come to my writing lessons and my acting classes? Why are you jealous of every scene partner I have? Why must I recount word for word everything I spoke to Dr. Black about? I'm assuming Dr. Black was their therapist. Why must I talk about every audition when you know it's bad luck for me? Why do we have discussions at 3 a.m. all the time instead of during the day? Why must you know the name of every person I come into contact with? You go crazy over my rehearsals. You insist on going to work with me when I've told you it makes me nervous. Your paranoia is overboard. You do not love me. You are obsessed with me. The person you think you love is not me at all. It is someone you have made up in your head. I'm the person who makes you angry, who you fight with sometimes. I think we only fight when images of me fade away and you're faced with the real me. That's why arguments erupt out of nowhere. The whole thing has made me realize how scared I am of you. And I don't mean just physically. I'm afraid of the next time you're going to have another mood swing. When we are good, we are great. But when we are bad, we are horrendous. The bad outweighs the good. Wow. she. I, I feel like she sounds so clear-headed and like she, very... Yes. 
to the point like it's yeah whether or not he read that i think you're right is doesn't matter because it, people don't write things like that unless they, unless they have, they're feeling them exactly yeah and so this was read in court after Barshup rested his case, Adelson requested that first degree be thrown out and the jury only be allowed to consider second degree or manslaughter because there was no premeditation or deliberation in the case. He said he didn't go over to the house with a weapon. He wasn't planning to kill her. Well, his hands were his weapon. So he did actually go over to the house with the weapon. Exactly. And we know that he used his hands as a weapon before. Yeah. And as the courtroom experienced, he had up to four minutes to reconsider what he was doing, but instead he continued choking her. Judge Katz agreed with Adelson. Detective Johnston was in the courtroom that day when first degree was taken off the table and said Judge Katz made him lose faith in the system after 26 years on the force. The judge gave his instructions to the jury, which, according to the foreman, were incomprehensible. The jury was out for eight, for eight days, and they were deadlocked. They asked the judge for clarification on the instructions four separate times, and each time, Judge Katz just told them, the answers to your questions are in your instructions. Hmm. Since the jury couldn't agree on second degree... Because very rarely do juries ever agree, they compromised. John Thomas Sweeney was guilty of voluntary manslaughter, the lowest Whoa. charge he could be found guilty of. And the attack that had occurred five weeks prior was a misdemeanor assault. The maximum sentence for both crimes was six and a half years. Whoa. But with good behavior and work time, the convict is automatically paroled without a parole hearing after serving half his sentence. And he had already served time from the moment he was arrested. John Thomas Sweeney would walk free in two and a half years. Wow. The jury foreman was questioned by the press what broke the deadlock. And he replied, and this is a quote, a few jurors were just hot and tired and wanted to give up. I I wonder about that a lot, honestly. Oh yeah, I it happens far more than you think. Like just I just want to do, be done with this. Ugh, mm -hmm. But that's someone's life. Exactly. Multiple people. Now, of course, as soon as the trial was over, everything came out about Lillian Pierce and there was an uproar cuz remember the jury didn't know anything oh, about right. her. Didn't even know she existed. So all this comes out immediately after. The media harshly criticized Judge Katz, and rightfully so. Okay, good. Katz responded by doing a 180. He blamed the jury for choosing <gasps> manslaughter rather than second degree, said John Thomas Sweeney was a threat to society, blamed the prosecutor for the outcome, saying that Barshop was ill-equipped to try the case. So he just starts lashing out everywhere, trying to save his oh own my face. God. The jury foreman said they would have absolutely found him guilty of the maximum charge had they heard all the evidence. Mamezan remained open just three more years after the murder. It closed on November 1st, 1985, after which Patrick Terrell came out and said, quote, the last time I ever saw or talked to Sweeney was when he completed his shift on the evening of the attack. I doubt that's true. Remember, he said he would make sure he got the best defense lawyer in town. Oh, right. Yeah. And that lawyer, Joseph Shapiro, was also the lawyer for Mami Zahn. Yeah, yeah. He went on to say, yet some would have you believe that I played a much more prominent role in Sweeney's defense. Some people have angrily accused me of supporting John Sweeney by providing his bail and legal services, but none of it is true. Many people didn't come back to my restaurant because they associated Ma Maison with the murder. I never showed it because I had a business to run, but it really affected both me and Ma Maison. Sorry, Patrick, that your oh my that God. your life was you know inconvenienced. Maybe by... you need to think about these things. Like I, I imagine that is why people didn't come back. I uh, wouldn't want to go yeah. even if even if I knew the owner didn't murder. I would be like mm, some I, bad like, vibes. Sorry, like, there's a Chipotle down the street. Exactly. I'll go there. Like, 
Chipotle, do you want to sponsor us? (laughs) So he goes on and on about his business, how this has affected him. And then at the very end, he adds, Dominique's death was tragic for those who knew and loved her. That's it. Period. Okay. Thanks, sir. Yeah. Once John was released from prison in September of 1986, it took him only three months to get hired as a chef at another prominent restaurant in L.A. Once the Dunn family learned where he was working, they handed out flyers to people heading into the restaurant that read, The food you will eat tonight was cooked by the hands that killed Dominique Dunn. (gasps) Wow. He eventually left that job. Okay. (laughs) Because of the protests. Years later, Dominic Dunn was contacted by a guy in Florida who had read an article about Dominique's death, and he told Dominic, my daughter is engaged to a chef named John Sweeney. Could this be the same man? And it turned out it was. Oh, my God. So Griffin Dunn actually contacted the woman and was like, you might want to rethink that whole marriage thing. So then John moved to the Bay Area in California. And I mentioned in part one that Everyone called him Sweeney. Even Dominique called him Sweeney. That's how he was known. No one called him John. But I said I wasn't going to call him that, um, and I would talk about why in part two. The reason is because John Thomas Sweeney changed his name. He no longer goes by Sweeney. He goes by the name John Patrick Mara. He's still out there. He is a free man. He is not hard to find. Don't be stupid, people. Whoa. Lenny Dunn launched her own victims' rights group in 1984, which is now known as the Justice for Homicide Victims. I'll link it in the show notes. They have a place where you can donate. Um, The donations go towards helping families of homicide victims. Dominic Dunn spent years tracking John, even hiring a private investigator, until finally he said he was done. He just couldn't let the man take any more life away from him. And that is the case. Wow. That's so wild. I, I, I'm so glad I didn't look up anything between I know. now and because I did. I, I, I was sure that he was just in jail. You would one would think when wow. you murder someone, you would alive. think that he's still alive. And there's an interview about um, that, that her parents gave that Lenny and Dominic um, gave just talking about how. They each died as well. Mm -hmm. A a piece of them died. So not just one person lost their life, but like everyone they knew, everyone that loved them, their friends, their family, everyone, they lost a piece of themselves too because of this man who was able to just walk out a couple years later, get a job, do what he loved, be a chef, and thrive. Well, yeah. And like, I feel like, you know, if you have to go through the horrific time uh, situation of someone in your family being murdered and like they're often, you know, like it's either you don't know who did it. And so like the, that the unknown is tricky mm-hmm. or you do know and you feel safe knowing that they're behind bars or whatever. They got like none of those situations. None of it that. Was, like, it was like we know exactly what happened, which I guess you can keep an eye on them is like the only sort of solace that you could feel like at least I can track this person but whoo that that's really hard yeah and that's the thing like he's not hard to find and just knowing that like he's there and then I think about well does that place of employment I mean surely that place of employment knows his history yeah well because he has I mean he has a record too so yeah and it's just in the how, restaurant. How good of a chef he is! Like, I and mean, this is like in my sick mind. I'm like, is he a really good cook? You know, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> who knows? I never want to find out. No, I no, never... not at all. It's just like it, I did think about it. I was like, I wonder if he's any good. I mean, he must have been. I'm yeah. Ugh. He must have been. He. I mean, he studied under Wolfgang Puck. He was at one of the top restaurants. Yeah, so gross and just. To, oh, did I even put this? in about the I don't think I did did I mention about the woman in France no fuck I don't know how I missed that so detective Johnson Johnston sorry had also gotten a tip that there was a woman in France remember he studied in France for a year sure yeah to prepare to become head chef at Mamezan 
who had reported at least one act of violence against her by him. Okay. But because she was in France, they were unable to track her down. So, yeah, so that's three women that we know of that he committed an act of violence or multiple against. Yeah. Walked free after a couple years. Shithead. And fucking Adelson. Oh, gross. And Katz. I will say, Judge Katz, not a judge anymore. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean, that's that's too much he didn't last much longer after that that's it thanks for thanks for coming back and i'm glad you didn't look anything up i was gonna tell you not to yeah no i i yeah i'm glad i didn't either well Um, dominique that's that's awful it's fucking crazy but now like when you i don't know it like gives new a new feeling like when you watch poltergeist i know i I think i might might watch it tonight actually yeah and he's like (laughs) It's like, man, like she was, she was on her way and she was fucking great Mm. and everyone loved her and she was such a natural talent and fuckheads took it away from her. Um, Let us know what you think. Uh, Leave it in the comments or you can rate, review and subscribe to us um, or check out our social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube. At Horrorwood Podcast. Perfect. Or you can shoot us an email. You can send us story suggestions, case suggestions, um, whatever you got. You can email us at horrorwoodpodcast at gmail.com. And if you're feeling a lot of the love and you really want to throw a little extra support our way, join our Patreon. You can do that at patreon.com slash horrorwoodpodcast. And remember to not stand too close to the edge of a cliff, especially if the person next to you is a klutz, and don't do murder. Please. Bye.